study with Xavier University's Institute for Spirituality and Social Justice. Graduate theology degrees and certificates available with online options. Tuition discounts for teachers, volunteers, and those in social or pastoral ministry. For more information, go to xavier.edu issj. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Bishop-elect Jacques Fabre. Bishop Jacques Fabre is the Bishop-elect of Charleston, South Carolina. He is a priest of the religious order, the Missionaries of St. Charles, or Scalabrinian Fathers, and will become the 14th Bishop of the Diocese. Bishop-elect Fab currently serves as administrator at San Felipe de Jesus Mission in Forest Park, Georgia, and as the local superior of the Scalabrinian priests in Atlanta. He will be ordained and installed on May 13, 2022. He speaks five languages, English, Spanish, Italian, French, and Creole. Bishop-elect Fab was born in 1955 in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. He immigrated to New York City, he then joined the Scalabrinians and took first vows in 1982 and was ordained a priest about four years later in 1986. The Catholic Diocese of Charleston, established in 1820, covers the entire state of South Carolina. Of note, he's the first Black bishop for that diocese. I think that's really important given the history of South Carolina and the transatlantic slave trade and the history how have typically how people of African descent have been viewed in that state, and even by Catholics as well. For example, the first bishop of the diocese, Bishop John England, who was an Irish immigrant, made an argument in defense of slavery during his day. He wrote a letter to the Secretary of State defending slavery. Now, mind you, at the same time, Pope Gregory XVI had written an encyclical letter in Supremo Apostolatus, which argued for the abolition of slavery. But John England, really trying to separate Catholics from abolitionists, basically said, no, 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 the Pope only spoke against the slave trade in general, not against slavery itself. In other words, we can't take people from Africa. We could just keep the ones we already have here enslaved and all their children and everybody that is born of these enslaved people, we can keep in slavery. The Pope didn't have a problem with that. This is Bishop John England's argument and really trying to defend Catholics from what they perceived as anti-Catholic abolitionists, which was a problem. I mean, he didn't make good faith arguments. He really just tried to cozy up to the political establishment. And this is not a good thing for the state of South Carolina in a spiritual sense, not a good thing because the poisonous fruit of that thinking still has seeds flowering today in the state of South Carolina. I mean, if you fast forward even just a little bit to Bishop Unta Keffler, who tried to desegregate all of the parochial properties in the, his diocese, you saw a obstinance and a resistance from white Catholics to this desegregation. Fast forward even to 2015, in South Carolina, in Charleston, the city's historic Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church experienced a murder. A white supremacist murdered nine Black people during their church's Bible study. Now, the significance of it 
is that Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded by the Reverend Morris Bound and Denmark Vesey. Does Denmark Vesey's name sound familiar to you? Well, it should be because he tried to lead a uprising that would have freed the enslaved and his plan was to escape to Haiti by boat. But Vesey was found out and he was executed and the church itself had been burned to the ground and all kinds of harassment by the white establishment because they dared to worship as they thought fit and also that it was an example of Black agency and freedom. All of this comes into play where our first Black bishop of Haitian descent, mind you, is coming to the Diocese of Charleston. And so some say, what does this mean? I will say to me personally, it means that I think the Holy Father, Pope Francis, is trying to signal things to the American church, which he knows has a problem with racism because we are a church in the United States, which has a problem with racism. And so in this particular Southern diocese where so many enslaved people actually came through the port of Charleston and then was spread up and down and all around the United States, there's something to be said about the, I think, the spiritual repairing by putting this man in charge of this diocese. We cannot ignore or dismiss the spiritual heritage that we have because of the grave evils that happened on our soil. And so I think a lot of times when I say that church needs a, or that we need a spiritual or psychological exorcism regarding race, I think this is the intoning prayer to the beginning of that exorcism by appointing this Black man as a spiritual head for the entire state of South Carolina. I hope it sends a signal about what holiness is. It sends a signal about the universality of Catholicism, about our faith, and about who's in heaven. You know, all of God's children can go to heaven, no matter what they look like. And so I'm very excited about this because I hope it is the beginning of some changes in the way people perceive Catholicism, that it isn't a religion that is only for white people or to cater to quote-unquote European taste, but it's a church for everyone with all of our gifts, with all of our talents, and with all of our devotions to God. And as a daughter of this diocese, it's just very special to me to see that this son of Africa, like me, a daughter of Africa, is coming to this church where sons and daughters of Africa were by its first bishop considered to be okay to be kept in chattel slavery. So just so many messages here. Now, understanding all the history that I've given you, and this is the context for him coming into the diocese, Bishop-elect Fob makes it clear the universality of the church and that I think he wants people to, because he, I think he understands that there's going to be some discomfort around all this history and, and what it represents and what some people might interpret it to mean for the Diocese of Charleston, but he's coming as a shepherd of souls. And he's leaning heavily on that and not so much on, yes, this is historic, what I'm doing, and this and that, but more so he leans on, I'm a shepherd of souls. And there's a universality in that where he is inviting everyone to see themselves with him. And we also talk about the meaning of the term African-American. You know, he is an immigrant from Haiti, so I explained to him as, an, as one African-American, to him who also, he's an African-American 
albeit of Haitian descent, I explained to him the significance of the term African-American, what it means, why it was used, and to understand it in that context, rather than looking at it in the context of Europeans. White Americans don't call themselves European-American. I mean, they call themselves Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, Irish American, Italian American, and what have you. But to understand it in light of what it means for Black people, for what it means for the sons and daughters of Africa who were kidnapped and brought to the United States, how it means it ties us back to this great place in Africa and a great culture and a people's. And that's not typical with a lot of bishops where you see this kind of openness in such a public forum on what some may consider such a sensitive topic. But what I think you notice between us is this friendliness, collegiality, just this familiarity that we seem to have, this bond really, that allows us to talk about something so sensitive and come out of it still with mutual love and respect. And for that, I'm very thankful to Bishop-elect Fobb, and I hope the spirit and generosity of our conversation is something that you can detect and savor. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Bishop-elect Bob is up next. Bishop Bob, thank you for joining me on my podcast, the Gloria Purvis podcast. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I couldn't wait to talk to you. I mean, I felt like we had so much in common. First of all, all my Haitian friends will kill me if I don't say sac passe. So I have to <laughs> and if I, if I don't answer, naboule. <laughs> right. Slowly burning, I think, right? Is that yeah, it? That's right, it is. Okay, slowly burning. <laughs> but you also were a pastor in the Dominican Republic in San Pedro de Macorís. And I studied yes. in the Dominican Republic for a while and I'd gone to some, actually, baseball games in San Pedro de Macorís because that's a big scouting community for professional baseball in the United States. Yes, it is. So I was just curious, did you get to minister to any baseball players down there while you in San Pedro de Macorís? Yes, one was from Quisqueya, where I worked. Oh, yeah, yeah. He played for the Yankees, Alfonso. Okay. And Kiskeya is the name of one of the beers down there that I used to drink. So. I know, but that's not the only thing. The, the name of the, the island was Kiskeya Boyo. Ah. That's the Indian word for it. That's why it's so okay. famous. But Kiskeya is also a, a section in the capital, but also that's where the sugarcane company is. Yeah, and they still have some sugarcane plantations yes. there, and I'm sure... There are a lot of things we could discuss about that, with how the workers were treated and whatnot. But I think your experience being in the Dominican Republic, well, first of all, your experience coming to the United States from Haiti and then joining basically an Italian on the Scalabrini fathers 
And then ministering in the Dominican Republic, ministering to then a largely Mexican population. It seems like you are well positioned to be able to deal with communities that may not have the same perspective or viewpoint that you do. And I know that the Holy Father has emphasized going to the margin, seeing who's not there and including them. But I always think people have to have that viewpoint that there is somebody other than themselves that might have a different view. And it seems like your life has well prepared you to have that view, to come into situations where everybody might not be like you, and then you thrive. How is that possible? (laughs) I always like to compare our differences like flowers, Mm. different colors. Yeah different smells, but it makes a beautiful bouquet. Yes. So all those cultures that I, every time that I learn a language and in a culture, I said I become a better person. And I always try to learn the best out of all cultures and all peoples. Mm -hmm. And that's, you cannot lose without, when you have that openness. Yes. Because that's God's gift to each culture. Even the food that we eat, for example, the rice that we cook. Yes. It's cooked in a way in Haiti, in Asia, in the U.S. The first yeah. thing that shocked me when I came here and I saw the rice, that there was steamed rice. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, where's the beans? Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, now that you're in Charleston, I hope somebody will make you some red rice and some Hop and John. Those are our local rice dishes that maybe you've already had them since you were in Georgia, but hopefully you have a good pot of Hop and John while you're down at that rice but our cow peas and the smoked meat hopefully will make you say, ah, very good. I learned that very fast. (laughs) Oh, good, good. So coming from Haiti to New York City, I mean, I think New York City, even though I was born in the United States, I'm like, New York City took me some getting used to, and I speak English and I'm from the United States. So I'm wondering how it was, what was the biggest maybe culture or shock to you coming from Haiti to New York City? Uh, The first cultural shock, when we used to think about New York, we used to see all the lightnings and the beautiful city. <laughs> yeah. And that was right after the 60s. You know, mm-hmm. when I went into the ghetto, practically, in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I saw people on the streets, garbage and so on and so forth, that was a shock to me because I didn't think that was in the U.S. That was the first shock. The second, because the way that we used to dress as Haitians, we have straight legs. And our hair was short-cut hair. Uh And Afro was in style. And bell-bottom was in style. (laughs) And they used to call me Frenchy all the time, not only because of the accent, because the way we were dressed, they said that we're looking more like French than Black Americans. So that was a very big shock, a cultural shock for me. So both of us, I think, in our own way, we are children of Africa. Your family coming through Haiti, my coming through the United States. And you also... Saw the children of Africa in the Dominican Republic. How does seeing all the, I guess, because sometimes people think the African-American or the Black community is this monolithic community. And I'm like, we are many from many, with many languages and many cultures. We have a commonality. But how does that, seeing so many, how shall I say, the Pan-African view of our community, how is that helping you coming into Charleston, which has a very established, I guess, Black community with roots from this transatlantic slave trade right there in Charleston? First of all, when I went to Brooklyn, I lived in right in the middle of a Black community. Mm-hmm. That's I've learned the culture, the Black American culture. And as you've said, when uh, Europeans thinking about Americans, they think that we all look alike. America yeah. is 
it's a small town. <laughs> so that's what we have to learn even talking about Blacks. There are different cultures, different languages, different realities. So I think we are different the way that we look at life coming from Haiti because yes. we are thought for many years that we are the first Black liberated country. Yes. So that gives us an identity. And I remember when I was in Guantanamo, there was a young minister. And when the Haitians were suffering in Guantanamo Bay, and he looked at me and he said, Jacques, at least your people have a place to go to that calls Haiti, no matter what. But us Black Americans, we don't feel we have a home. Mm-hmm. And that, that, was, uh, that was very shocking to me. Because if I said, no, you're American, that's your land, that's where. So sometimes I feel that not all, of course, certain, that there's a difference. At least they said African-Americans, but we don't say European-American for the whites. That's shocking. And the continent is a big continent. Huge. So I think even the word using African-American, I hope it's not a way to feel that you don't belong. It's not your land. This is not your place. So if it's not your place, as immigrants have that tendency, they're still thinking about their home and they don't feel that's a new home. So that's where you belong. That's where you have to you have to participate so you make it better than you found it. I think when the term African-American, when it moved from Black to African-American, it was the idea to help Black people in the United States realize we had a rootedness from someplace. We didn't just, you know, drop off of anywhere. You know, it's in Charleston especially, there's a proud Irish-American history community, culture, Italian-American, all that kind of stuff. And so the term African-American came about to remind us that we did come from a place and we had a native land and not so much that America wasn't our country, but it wasn't that we just fell out of the sky, that we had a place, we had a history and the great history of the kings in Africa, the developments in Africa, that kind of thing. But it does bring me to this question. What does it mean to you personally to be the first Black Bishop of Charleston, and frankly, one of just a handful of Black bishops in the United States. I read once a book about Christology, no? mm. talking about Jesus. Yes. One of the things that Jesus was able to do is to have most of the people in power against him and have all the peoples in need in favor of him. And it was hard to put Jesus in a box. Mm. And as I think he died because of that, because all the enemies got together against him. Mm-hmm. And I don't like any title because he might put me in a box. Ah. First Haitian, first black. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. He might put you in a, in a box and I hate to be in boxed in. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting because it's history. That's mean that we are moving forward yes. to have a person from a different country, different language being part of the hierarchy of the state, it's a huge progress. But from there, I would leave it at that and see us as people with one history, different angles. So I'm going to be part of that history. Yes, and I can tell you, I'm a daughter of the Diocese of Charleston. I was... Are you? Yes, I went to the cathedral school. It's no longer the Catholic school there. But right there in that little crypt church, at the cathedrals, I had an encounter with the Lord in the Eucharist that brought me into the church as a child. And I could tell you, for me, I was rejoicing when I found out you were going to be the bishop for the diocese, because I think it's such a gift to the city of Charleston. It's a gift 
to the state of South Carolina, considering our history. And I think it says something about the church and helps people understand the universality of the Catholic faith and that holiness has many different faces. When you talk exactly. about a garden, that's one of the things that I like. And when some people say, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. I was like, why wouldn't you want to, to see the, that's like going into garden and not seeing any of the colors or the shapes or the sizes. It's to not see the creativity of God. And so I see you here. And for me, it's a sign that the church in the South, which has this history, this tangled up history with Blackness, with Black people, to see you as a shepherd, a carer, a symbol for them to realize, you know, Black is beautiful, Black is holy, Black is beloved by God. And I think it's such a message, healing message for Charleston, also given the terrible situation with the murder of the Charleston Nine and all that happened with the Black community more largely in that area. So for me, I could just say as a daughter of Charleston, the Charleston Diocese, that's what it also meant to me, seeing you be named the first Black bishop and also one of first of a religious order for the diocese. However, when you are first, there was a responsibility. Uh, yeah. As I was telling the Haitian community, I cannot fail. <laughs> <laughs> you you will not, okay. <laughs> because if you fail that everybody else, that you are the first four, might fail with you. So it's a, it's a more responsibility to do the best. Yes, but to be yourself, and I want to be myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I said that you say colorblind. We cannot be colorblind. We're not supposed to be. Right. If God made us differently, we have to enjoy the differences. Mm-hmm. That diversity, we become one because of that. Yeah. You talked about having a common humanity. Exactly. And that, to me, is the key to it all. We have a common humanity. We have a common ancestor and God. So we're all family. But what are your hopes for the diocese? I know you talked about that you will build on what's already there and that you can, as a community, come together there to witness or give a testimony to God's goodness. But do you have anything specific in mind right now or hopes that you could think of for Charleston? No, I don't because I don't know the diocese. I'm learning to know the people, the place, the history. So the hope is that to continue what God asked of me as a person of my gifts and put it into service. And I think that's my hope, of course, that I will be accepted and accept the people. I think that's that's a challenge for, for us because wow. uh, yeah. the former bishop, the administrator, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, was wonderful and he's done you know, a great job. Where we are now, he built it, so I don't have to worry about it. And mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about building the financial into the ashes. So maybe it's time to, to build up on what the church is asking us to do. It's evangelization. Because as Catholics, we think that we are using the reality of the third generation. We're using what we found. Mm. But we're not proactive in terms of evangelization, what the other denominations are doing. Like they, they're looking constantly evangelizing. So we're not doing it. I think we have to evangelize. I think that's that will be something that I will work for. It's been done, but we have to be more aggressive. I agree. I love that. I mean, we live in the South in the Bible Belt. And so for Catholics to be expanding and evangelizing and growing the church, I think is so important. I am especially 
excited to know that you have already experienced working with the Spanish language community, Hispanic community there, which is growing, I know, in South Carolina. And being able to speak that language, I think, helps in that evangelization. And you speak so many languages, Creole, French, Spanish, Italian, English. Good gracious. Are you planning on learning Gullah while you're there? That's what, no, that's what the island I, folks speak, the Gala or the Geechee, as they call us. Mm-hmm. No, my plan was to go to Brazil to learn Portuguese after uh-huh. my assignment. <laughs> so, and then they put you in so, Charles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll be right back. Fordham University is sponsoring an online panel titled Taking Responsibility. Jesuit educational institutions confront the causes and legacy of clergy sexual abuse. The panel will take place Thursday, April 21st from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Speakers are Karen Terry of John Jay College, Gerard McLone, SJ, and Paul Eli of Georgetown, Donna Freitas, and Maka Black Elk of Red Cloud Indian School. Learn more and register for a Zoom link at fordham.edu slash taking responsibility panel. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the things that I, as I was looking into your background that I found very interesting is that your mother founded a legion of mary in brooklyn so you have a praying mama do you think all those prayers is what made our lady tap you on the shoulder and jesus said yeah i'll take them and bring you into the priesthood and now look a bishop of charleston soon to be like i said in the press conference when i told her i was going to be a priest she looked at me in the eyes and said if you're going to do it do it good do it the (laughs) right way so yeah she was a very devoted to our lady and that's why i I'm choosing uh, the 13th of May, which is not a good month because most priests have first communion, confirmation, mm-hmm. and so on. But I think also good because when I was a child, I was going to die. Mm. And she was crying. So in the hospital, the best doctor at the time in Haiti told my mother that there was no hope I was going to die. And she went to the chapel, the chapel of that hospital, the general hospital, and there was Immaculate Conception. Uh-huh. And she prayed and she said, if you're going to save him, it's going to be yours. Oh. And uh, my mother said that like the same day she was walking with me, I began to smile and uh-huh. and playing with her. And she went to the doctor and the doctor was very surprised. I said, he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what uh, I think. She, Mary has been very great in my life mm. since then because of my mother. Uh, and my father was Seventh-day Adventist. Okay. From my father's side. As a matter of fact, I have a cousin in Charleston, and he's, okay. he's Adventist, so I think okay. he's going to be there for the celebration. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I love that story of a mother talking to another mother on behalf of her son and that total abandonment and trust in God from your mother. And, and God has blessed her with you and with basically your vocation to the priest that you were already picked before you knew it because your mom was like, he's totally yours. I, I agree here. 
That's yeah, beautiful. She's responsible for my headache. <laughs> <laughs> she's responsible. <laughs> well, and you know, also, I'm so glad that you mentioned you have a cousin, the Seventh Day Adventist, because I I think that's another thing that helps us in this country to realize, even if we have different faith beliefs, we're still one family, and in your case, exactly. literal blood family. But I think that's something that we also need to recognize and think about as Catholics is that there are uh, so many people with different beliefs and ours, but we are still family. And I think that's such a great witness actually for people living in South Carolina, where there's so many other people who aren't Catholic around us, that they're still our family too, as we are theirs. And I'm just so excited for your elevation to be the Bishop of Charleston. And I know your training as a Boy Scout mother, Legion of Mary, the fortitude it took to wait in Haiti and then come to the United States, come to Brooklyn, join the Scalabrini fathers. And then, as you say, preach out in the country everywhere, the rural area, and now come to Charleston, which really some people still say is kind of rural, <laughs> not a city, but so glad not, you're Not you're for there. me. Not for you. It's a city. It's a city, <laughs> not rural like you were in San Pedro de Macorís. Exactly. Right. I understand. I'm so thankful for this time with you. And I'll be praying on the day of your elevation to be Bishop of Charleston. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and give me a certain different perspective of things. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.